This week's episode of the Vel News Podcast is again brought to us by VeloSwap, the country's largest used bike expo and swap. And it is coming up here Saturday, November 2nd at the National Western Complex in Denver, Colorado. You can get your tickets now uh, on VeloNews.com. We have a banner right at the top of the page. You can click through and buy your tickets to both uh, come and buy. Or if you want to sell, if you want to clear out all that bike gear that's been clogging up your closet, that you've been looking at saying, oh, I should put this on Craigslist, uh, take it to VeloSwap and sell it to the good people. Folks, I love VeloSwap. It is one of my best days of the year because not just the gear, but the people you meet behind the gear. You stroll through an exhibition hall that is soaring, and inside are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who love bikes and love bike gear, and they are selling some great stuff. Bikes, bike frames, old components, wheels, racing stuff, collector stuff, and you get to go check it out uh, and meet the person selling it. Maybe maybe haggle on price with them. And uh, I will tell you, it is very much a buyer's market. So it's VeloSwap. It's coming up Saturday, November 2nd at the National Western Complex in Denver, Colorado. I will see you there. Let's get on with the podcast. Uh, it's the Velo News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on Monday final day of September. We have a very special USA, USA, American World Championship-centric podcast going on today because we're going to be talking all about worlds and the success that Team USA had over there, winning seven medals, three of them gold. Uh, Later in the show, we're going to talk to one of those gold medalists, Mr. Quinn Simmons, who won the junior road race in fairly dramatic fashion with the 33-kilometer breakaway. At one point, he was like waving to his friends. I don't know, kids these days. Uh, We're going to catch up with Quinn, but we're also going to break down the action from all of the races. And uh, here to do that is my main man, Andy Hood. Andy, you are uh, back in our lives um, what what are your, some of your thoughts coming out of this World Championships? I mean, you were watching it on the computer like I was. Are are you sopping wet from all the all the rain that fell on the elite men's race? That's right, Fred. I'm, I was cold yesterday just watching the race. Brutal conditions out there. You know that could happen. I mean, it's kind of ironic. You know, we saw pretty good weather for the women's race on Saturday, and then today you saw some of the postings on uh, social media. The sun broke out again today. Just bad timing for that men's race on Sunday. Really horrendous conditions, and you really get a a sense of how bad the conditions were when you see guys like Philippe Joubert leaving the race in tears. Uh, Alejandro Valverde abandoned his first world's since he made his debut back in 2000, or I think it was 1896 when he first made his world's <laughs> debut. First time he's abandoned ever in any worlds. And you saw, I think, less than uh, 50 finishers in the entire race. So that tells you, man, how hard that race was yesterday. I went back and watched some clips, and uh, it was pouring rain the entire day. It was such bad weather that they had to adjust the course. They took out two of the big climbs. Um, but you know, it's one of the, you know it's a tough day of racing when you're watching it and there's like 30K to go. And everyone is still wearing their full rain gear. It's not like they've stripped down to gilets or down to just, you know, arm and leg warmers. But most of the people are still in the big rain capes or the heavy jackets. Um, I feel like the proper attire for yesterday's road race was like uh, maybe like a scuba suit, like a wetsuit. I mean, (laughs) it was cold. It was some rainy. Gore-Tex. Some Gore-Tex. People would cross the line. They'd, they'd have the cameras there when they'd drop out, and these guys were just shaking and shivering. And look, we've all ridden in that type of, uh, those type of conditions, but can you imagine racing for seven and a half hours in something like that? Uh, really kind of brutal, uh, brutal setup. And I, you know what? I think it's, it's unquestionable that that weather had a huge impact on not just what happened in the race, but who won. So Mads Peterson of Denmark won the race. Um, we've interviewed, we and I both have interviewed Mads over the year. He's 23 years old. He's a relative newcomer to World Tour Racing, but he's a big classics guy. And um, Mads is like, he's a big dude. He is a, uh, if, you know, in another life, Mads would be um, rushing the passer or like, Carrying the, he'd be a fullback. He'd be like Mike Allstott from the old Tampa Bay Buccaneers teams. He's a big guy. 
Yeah, he's one of the old school boys that uh, hasn't kind of gone out to that power-to-weight ratio. And I think that probably helped him a lot yesterday in that race, Fred, because, you know, we saw guys – the skinny guys were just really suffering out there and having that little bit of extra body weight. That's really when it does actually help you is when you're out there in those cold, treacherous weather conditions like we saw yesterday. And you have to wonder, you know, a guy like that raised, you know, the Danish, the Danish winters, man, that's, that's, that's hard weather up there in, in uh, Northern Europe. It's cold, it's grim, it's windy. So for him, it's probably just like an average Sunday afternoon group <laughs> ride, you know? And, uh, and I think it really just paid off in the end for him, you know, looking at his Palmares, you know, he was, second last year uh the tour of flanders so he's not a fluke winner uh he's won a dozen races as a pro uh but he's never won a world tour race so i think uh that race and with those weather conditions yesterday i mean no way do you put an asterisk on it he's he won the world champion no, no question about it beat, beat some quality guys in that group but you're right you know had that race been held uh today or, or the day before the same weather conditions with the women would have been a different very different kind of race but that's bike racing it's it's you know that that's just the luck of the draw. It's the way the race unfolded. Hats off to a really quite a, a surprising performance from uh, I think uh, the Danish team. Really, you know, he was not their front line captain to win that race. You know, they had uh, Fuglesang and uh, some other guys uh, on the Danish team, Valgren, to be really their leaders. And I think that uh, you know Peterson kind of got in that position where he was the right guy at the right place and can really capitalize on the racing dynamics the way it turned out. And, man, what a what a win to, to, to beat, uh, to, to see uh, Vanderpool fade out of that group and then see Trenton, the other favorite of that group, just kind of really misfire that sprint. And, boom, we got the first Danish men's, elite men's Danish world champion. you got to have all of the uh, explainers in there or else the people, the angry hordes on Twitter will get at you. I went back and watched it. And so Mads Peterson, it was, it, was a, it was a tactical race. There was a breakaway off the front uh, at about 60K to go with our man Austin. Awesome Lawson Craddock and Stefan Kung, another breakaway specialist. And they were, you know, 20 seconds, 15 seconds, 25 seconds. And it was, I believe, 45 Ks to go is when Mads Peterson attacked out of the Peloton and made it back there. And, and he got on the front, took a pretty big pull, and that that dropped Lawson Craddock. That was the end of Craddock was when uh, Peterson came, came across. But in looking at that uh, bridging move, I was like, ooh, wow. In, in retrospect, it was like, he made it across there real fast. You know, like, he, he got up there real quick and took a big pull, and Kung, you, you saw Kung get on his wheel and was like, oh, God. So to be able to make uh, Stefan Kung have to labor that hard to stay on your wheel, that was one of those, you know, in retrospect, hindsight 2020 was like, ooh, Mads was really strong. And then, you know, the other riders bridged across. Gianni Moscone was up there. Mike Tunison was up there. Um, and it was Mads Peterson was not skipping poles. He was taking big old poles. And again, watching the replay of the race, uh, it was his poles on the front that happened to do some damage and, and drop some of these guys. So kind of in retrospect, um, because I think I was a lot of, like a lot of people when it came down to the, the final sprint between Kung, Peterson, and uh, Trentine, I, I picked Trentine as the winner as well. But in retrospect, going back at some of those dynamics, you could see that Matt, that Mads Peterson was was very strong. Um, he was he was controlling the dynamics of what happened in that group. So let's get on to some of the other things that happened. You mentioned it here, uh, Matthew Vanderpool, the big odds-on favorite, bridged across to the group with about thirty-five k's to go after his teammate Mike Tunison was dropped. And added a ton of firepower to the group. He brought across Trentine. Um, the group, I believe, was five at that point. Um, and I think all of us were set for the big Trentine versus Matthew Vanderpool showdown. And then heading into the final lap, just the lights went out in Vanderpool. And he, I mean, it was, I watched that clip again too. And it's like, it wasn't on a hill. It was on kind of a flat uh, patch of ground and he just like boom just blew up just lights went out and he was out of there uh, what was go, what was your reaction when you saw that happen to Vanderpool well I think that uh, just moments before that I'd posted a, a something on uh, our friend there Twitter saying oh you know it's a big uh, it's gonna be a big fight between uh, I think I read something like it's obvious uh, Trenton's gonna wait for the sprint I, I thought that Vanderpool had the legs to ride everyone off his wheel and I just posted that literally maybe a minute or two before Vanderpool blew up. And so, of course, I got some grief from our friends on, on the Twitter scope. But, uh, you know, at first I thought he had a puncture or he had some mechanical. 
just to see him suddenly just you know stop start pedaling squares like that. I mean, I thought something had to be wrong with his bike, and it wasn't. It was something was wrong with his legs, and. Uh, you know, hats off to uh, Vanderpool, though. I think uh, a little bit of humility might, you know, perhaps even serve him well. I mean, you know, we don't know him that well, what he's like. It seems like he's a pretty cool character. I don't think he's going to be one of these guys that would be devastated by this experience or, or in any way, you know, kind of alter the trajectory of his career. I mean, the guy is uh, one of the most gifted riders we've seen in, in really a decade. Um, but for him to, you know, ride on pride still and finish that race and what he would said what he said because he had it was i wanted to finish my first elite men's worlds and uh what he said afterward was that that uh he just lights went out no real explanation he said he ate and drank enough and it suddenly just hit this kind of wall but he said later actually felt better it was just kind of this weird moment he said about five minutes in the race where he just had nothing in his legs the group rode past him and he said he kind of felt a little bit better in the last five or 10 Ks coming in when he did ride into the finish. But, you know, really everyone just, you know, he was the guy everyone was talking about. Everyone thought, you know, after the season he's had across all these disciplines, you know, the, the storybook ending was Vanderpool winning the rainbow jersey. And, man, it just shows you that uh, nothing's scripted in this sport. Again, I went back and watched the clips and w- watched his attack, and he bridged across to the Peterson group very quickly um, with Trentino on his wheel and looked very strong and immediately got into that group and was working and taking big pulls and cycling through. And Muscon was sitting on, and other guys would skip pulls and not Vanderpool. He would take a big pull. But, you know, they showed some of these overhead clips of the the group um, pulling through and, 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 you know, making headway. And some stood out to me and I was like, wow, there's a Matthew Vanderpool. He's with some Clydesdales. He's with some like big, beefy, brawny dudes. You know, Mads Peterson is a big guy. Stefan Kung is a, is a real big dude. And look, Vanderpool's a big dude too. But I just sort of body shape and just looking at these guys, there was part of me that was like, huh, man, you know, he's going, he's going blow for blow with some real wattage monsters who can pull like this all day long. And, you know, maybe it was the weather. Maybe, you know, he got cold. There were some clips of him just shaking uncontrollably and shivering after he crossed the line. Uh, maybe it was the distance. You know, that's something we talked about last week where, hey, we know he can be great at 200K, 200Ks and at 220K, but boy, 250, 260, 270. We haven't really seen that from him yet. Um, but I just happened to, I just kind of wonder if it was like, you know, trading body blows with some real Clydesdales after 240, 250K racing, and he's just just not there yet, you know? And not to say he won't get there. I'm sure he will, but just he just wasn't there yet. I don't know. Yeah, no, it was interesting. It was something that I think it surprised a lot of people. Uh, and then, you know, once Vanderpool was out of there, then, like you said, all the attention turned to Trentine. And you got to feel sorry for that guy because you look in a scenario where they had uh, uh, the other Italian in there taking pulls and really Muscone working, making sure that uh, Trentin was set up. Muscone got gaps, a three-up sprint. I mean, Trentin's going to win that nine out of ten times in almost every scenario. And I think maybe he he was uh, obviously uh, his reaction afterwards. He was he was just so cold as well. He was cold to his core and. I think he opened up a sprint maybe a little bit too early, like in hindsight, you know, kind of an uphill drag, and then it kind of there was a little bit of a false flat. So I think he maybe started. He jumped up maybe 100 meters too early because he you could see that he had the, the acceleration, the spark, but he didn't quite have the watch to hold that for more than that kind of first spurt, and that's when uh, Peterson just came over over the top of him. And uh, Trenton knew he was beat right there at the line, and there's nothing he could do about it, and. You have to wonder about that guy. I mean, that's that's obviously his last chance to win the world championships. It was Italy's first big chance to win in quite a few years. They haven't won now in more than ten years. So you got to wonder a lot of sad faces around the Italian uh, dinner table last night. One can imagine. Yeah, and it's another thing that we talked about last week, which is something that makes world so unique, which is the distance. And look, after seven and a half hours of racing, these guys don't race for seven and a half hours week in week out. Um, you just you don't really know what's going to happen to the legs and the physiology. And yeah, so on paper, uh, Trenton has the sprint. But you know what? After seven and a half hours, like, 
what you know nobody know nobody really knows if that sprint's going to be there or how long it's going to be last how long it's going to last and as you said it was a spurt it was like a couple of puffs of smoke came out put 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 he got his acceleration <laughs> then it was like uh no just to set the record straight fred six and a half hours six and a half hours not, not seven and a half hours maybe it's seven and a half hours on uk time oh yeah but actually on the on the real time it was only six and they had an extra like, hour over there they had an extra over there on the uh, GMT. Um, but it's an interesting point because, you know, we're seeing this tendency in racing to have shorter and shorter road stages. You know, even the, even the Grand Tours, we're seeing stages, you know, pretty rare to see a stage over 2-2-20. So the only days they do really head out on these 250-plus days are during really the monuments and the World Championships. So you have to wonder, a lot of these younger guys might not have that, that experience, you know, that depth in their legs or you know, anybody really in the contemporary peloton. So it's an interesting uh, take there about that distance. But I wonder, though, you know, with uh, your point about Vanderpool not being able to go the distance. I mean, some people said that he was a mountain biker. You know, he's a, he's a cyclocross rider. You know, he's, he's good at those one-hour intense efforts or two-hour intense efforts. You know, maybe that's what caused him to blow up yesterday. I don't think that was the case. We saw him win at uh, Amstel Gold Race, that's 250K. He was at that fantastic race at Flanders. You know, that's 235K in even harder conditions, really, in terms of course. Um, so with Vanderpool and, and all these guys, I think it was just the the distance plus the bad weather. I mean, that was the game changer yesterday. We saw other guys just crushed. You know, the French were heavily favored. Uh, Philippe came across the line. He said he had nothing. Uh, the Belgians were really favored. I think they were probably the strongest team next to the Dutch yesterday. And, uh, you know, Joubert crashed out. Remco was kind of helping Joubert. And when he was gone, uh, Van Avermaet was there, and Lampart was just pulling for all he could. Made no difference on that lead group. Once that lead group was in that final lap, the gap did not go down. And by then, everyone's just on their knees coming into the finish line. Yeah, I think the story this year is power. Um, I think that Mads Peterson, very worthy winner. And yeah, some days the sun is shining, and some days it's sideways rain and cold. And in situations like that, someone from a place like Denmark, where, like you said, yeah, Mads Peterson probably he probably learned to ride his bike in conditions not too different from that uh, up there in Denmark. And, you know, it, some, some days it's just a, a race for a big, brawny, strong Clydesdale of the sport. And Mads Peterson was the, the biggest and the brawniest yesterday. So chapeau uh, to him. Um, first of all, oh, last thing I'll say on that is that, yes, yeah, some of these clips of these guys um, just coming across the line. There was a great one of Peter Sagan who ended up attacking out of the breakaway uh, to get fifth or fourth. And his glasses are pulled down around his cheeks and he's trying to see out of this gap. And uh, he looked like an, uh, he looked like a school teacher that where you've like turned in your homework late and he's just scowling at people. And I was, that, for me, that was like the lasting image of the race was just like wet, rainy, misery, miserable bike racing. Uh, th- that was not the case though. The day before, hoodie, one day before, if they would have had the race on Saturday, they would have had the same condition for the elite women's race, which was bluebird skies, Um, you know, a little breezy here and there. But uh, it looked, I don't know, it looked great. What were your takeaways from the elite women's race? Yeah, really, it was uh, such a contrast of really the weather almost the whole week. We saw that earlier in the week, those horrendous uh, conditions during some of the time trial races with the crashes. And then uh, even during the other uh, earlier, uh, it was either wet or damp or cooled and suddenly the, the sky broke out and that's when you realize just how beautiful that part of england really is you know when it's green like that and i remember one year we co- we were covering the tour of ireland back in the day years ago and i remember the locals were saying oh it's been raining every day for three months and then we were there for the whole week of the tour of ireland and it was just beautiful sunny skies every day and then on the last day of that race, it just downpoured, and it was so cold and miserable. And that's the way it is in that part of the world most of the time. So the women had a great racing conditions. You know, we saw you know a tremendous uh, victory. You know, there were some great finish line quotes from some of her rivals there. Uh, and the gold medalists, you know, winning in a 100K solo breakaway. You were talking to her. You said uh, 
she's been had something like that for sleep for quite a while. Yeah, we had Annemiek van Vluten on this podcast, this very podcast, uh, in June. And we talked a lot about the 2018 Road World Championships, which was run by, won by her countrywoman, Anna van der Breggen, who went on her own l- long breakaway. But Van Fluten said that she was so bummed out because she famously crashed and broke her patella in that race because she wanted to go on the long range move herself. She felt really strong and felt like the 2018 world's course, which was really hilly was catered especially to her. And she wanted to, she was going to be like the, the early move, but she never got to because of the crash. And, you know, on, I guess on paper, when you looked at this course, when it had one sizable climb, you know, what was it? 50 K's in and then sort of hilly terrain for the rest of it. You wouldn't think, that that would cater to a 105-kilometer breakaway move. But uh, Van Vluten, she did it. She, she went for it. Um, I think some of the quotes I saw was that she attacked like a, or she went, went off like an airplane, is what someone said when she attacked up this big climb uh, with 100 Ks to go. And, you know, Van Vluten is an interesting rider. She is, you know, she's an, uh, the, best, the best climber, the best pure climber in women's road racing and also the best or this top one of the best uh, individual time trialists chloe digert showed that she's probably the best time trialist right now so when you put those together and then you throw in the strength of the dutch team knowing that they're going to be in whatever chase group is behind um it does create dynamics in which you know okay maybe a 105 kilometer breakaway is going to work because i feel like when most people hear just the statistics of the day. Wow, 105-kilometer breakaway. Everyone kind of shakes their head and is like, what? Like, that's not supposed to happen. How the heck did that well, when, happen? When when Chris Froome did it in the Giro that year, people didn't like it. <laughs> people did not like it when he did it. And, you know, Van Vluten, I guess, I, I haven't seen any criticism of it online. I just think that, you know, she was very strong. And then the Dutch team, the Dutch women's team does what Dutch women's teams always do at the World Championships, which is load up the front group and then play team tactics. So Anna van der Breggen made the chase group alongside Lizzie Dignan and Chloe Digert, um, Elisa Longo-Borghini, Amanda Spratt was in there. And then they just, you know, they gave Van Vluten, was like a minute, minute and a half. And then up to two minutes is when uh, Digert started attacking, like 40 Ks out. And by that point, it was, it was probably too late to bring back Van Vluten and Digert who was the big animator, um, was a bit untested at that distance. So we saw her do a series of searing attacks and get a gap. And I was on the edge of my seat. I thought she was going to be attacking and um, coming home for the silver. But she went maybe a lap too soon because, much like Vanderpool, um, she got her gap, was chugging away, looking great, and then just with one lap to go, 13 Ks or so, um, the lights went out, and Vanderbregen and Spratt brought her back and went on to finish uh, second and third. So Chloe Digert finished fourth place, which, hey, a win and a fourth place at uh, your first elite road world championships. That's not too bad for Team America right there for, uh, for Chloe Digert owen Got to talk about it, man. This is the big debate. We got to talk about this U23 men's race and the disqualification of Dutchman Nils Ekoff. Uh, for those of you who have been sitting under a rock on the moon with your ear, your thumbs in your ears, um, Nils Ekoff, the big Dutchman, um, makes it into the front group in this U23 men's race. He wins the sprint, uh, a sprint of seven, and he's the fastest across the line. And, you know, we're watching or waiting for them to interview him and waiting for the results to be posted. And then news comes down that the UCI, in their infinite wisdom, have decided to disqualify him because footage... Uh, appeared from earlier in the race showing him drafting off of the Dutch team car for minutes and minutes and minutes as he uh, tried to catch back onto the Peloton after a crash, at which point social media exploded with hot takes going left and right. Columns were written. People were flustered. Um, You know, just people were real real bent out of shape about this one. Um, We've had a couple days to digest it. Um, I don't think I've talked to you about it. Where where are you with the Nil Zikoff disqualification? Yeah, it was interesting because the, some of the first video we saw, we just had the video of him kind of trailing through the team cars, you know, toward the end there, which is kind of a par for the course, right? I mean, you get a puncture or a mechanical, and as long as there's no barrage up, that's what you do. You just float through the cars and you get back on. 
and it seemed like uh, everything was good to go. And that's why everyone's getting so upset with the UCI race jury because they thought, well, how could you disqualify him for that? And then I think it was not even really till the next morning, the UCI released some video they had of much earlier in that chase back where he was behind the Dutch car, you know, really just motor pacing. I think at some point he went over 85K an hour. <laughs> so, you know, they were just, you know, motor pacing him back up to, to the rest of the cars. And then he kind of filtered in and, and uh, got back in. But I guess the big real talking point of that race was, you know, when and where did that happen? And was it really necessary to disqualify the guy? Because you can make the argument, yeah, if you didn't motor pace the guy back, he would not have made it back to the race, and he would not have won. But, you know, the tradition in cycling is, you know, mechanical. And in fact, I think I read, I'm not, this is not quite confirmed, but I think he, you know, he, w- he was involved in a crash in a car that was illegally or, you know, left unattended on the race course, a car that should not have been there, that someone left the car on the race course, and he had smacked him into a car that was on the race course. That's the, kind of what caused him to crash. Um, so, you know, the question is, you know, is, is it too much of a, of a penalty? Um, you know, I crushed the kid, you know, I saw the oh, images yeah. of him just crying, you know, I mean, it's crushing for that kid. Um, and what a difference that makes. I mean, is, uh, the guy who got, who got the, uh, to actually won the race is now getting a world tour contract. Yeah, it's a tough one, man. I mean, I've gone back and forth on it. I, I, I don't think they sh- should have disqualified him. I mean, like in the manner in the manner they did it is just heartbreaking, and it is mean spirited, and it's just I mean, it's just it's a terrible way to go about. It makes the sport look bad, you know. I mean, in a perfect world, you're able to um, in a perfect world you're able to determine that he um, broke a rule and remove him from the race if you feel so strongly about it. If you're the sports governing body, you're able to say, hey, you know, you went full super boost for far too long that is an infraction we caught you on video this looks bad you are now out of the race but it's cycling it's a flawed sport i I was beginning to write a column on this but other things got in the way and i said that you know someday in the future you know someday in the distant future we're gonna have like drones carrying electron microscopes and cameras and we'll be able to make these decisions immediately on the fly and everything will be just and everything will be fair and it'll be great but that's those that's years away we're we're still we still have the like underfunded and kind of um you know befuddled governing body that we we've always had and so consistency is tough and decisions get made on the road and and we know this like i don't know we've been following this sport for long enough to know that situations like this happen and race juries make decisions and something i keep coming back to is if you're at the UCI's race and you know there's TV cameras everywhere and you know that drafting for that long is illegal and that the UCI really frowns on it, even if they don't enforce it at every single race, um, if you're going to go full super boost for minutes and minutes and minutes going 80 kaya an hour behind the team car, you're at the very least playing with fire. You are tempting the gods. You are taking a calculated risk. And... You know, I'm not saying you're you're not going to get caught every single time, but at the very least, you are putting yourself in a position in which you could get caught. All around, you know, really a great world for the uh, for the USA cycling team. I think the medal count is the best they've had since racing on home roads in Richmond in 2015. Uh, three golds, like you said, and uh, you know, Fred, what's the takeaway there? I mean, I know you did a lot of reporting on the kind of junior development program this year. Uh, talk about that. A lot of shakeups inside the USA Cycling, but it really paid off. Yeah, the big story around the um, junior team, which Megan Yastrab won the junior women's team, uh, women's road race, and Quinn Simmons won the junior men's road race. And the story was th- there was that, um, you know, earlier this year, USA Cycling had a pretty big budget cut and that it had to give to its development program. And it got rid of the U23 team and it um, made it so that fewer juniors than normal came over to Europe. And these programs are really important. They bring over young riders to participate in these European races, Nations Cup races, the big development races, week in, week out for, for months. And the juniors get experience, they get stronger, they learn the dynamics of racing in Europe, and they, they develop a lot of confidence. And in, in the past, the philosophy had been, 
bring as many talented juniors over as possible to give them a taste. And the ones who improve and who are able to build off their performances, stay with them, give them some more resources. Maybe they'll get onto a pro team. That's how you advance them through the sport. Um, this year, there was no U23 program, so the U23s couldn't go race in the nation's cups. And the juniors was kind of whittled down to the same six or seven dudes in years past maybe they'd bring over 20 total but this year it was like the same six guys and it was a shame and no one was happy about it but there was a positive element to it which is that those six guys raced together basically year in year out um cohesively and they you know they had a rider of quinn simmons's level who quinn simmons is probably a generational talent He's from Durango. We've we've talked to him. We're going to hear from him pretty soon. Um, and he has amazing capacity to race. But they also were able to build around Quinn Simmons with a team that was capable of controlling the junior men's race. So if you go back and watch this junior men's world championship, you'll see the Team USA is like they're riding like quick step or like Team Sky. They're on the front. They're setting the pace. They're drilling it up the climbs. They drilled it into the climb where Quinn Simmons and Magnus Sheffield attacked to form the first big move. And you don't see that very often in juniors racing. What you see in junior racing a lot, this is what people have told me, is that the European races are so short that everyone's just like attack, 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 attack. There's like no team dynamics. It's just chaos. It's just like a washing machine of 17-year-old kids flying around on their bicycles and other kids getting dropped. And if you're fit enough to like make it through this flurry of attacks, then maybe towards the end of the race, you get an opportunity. So to see Team USA ride on the front like Team Sky and like putting the whole junior field in the gutter and then springing their strongman and his big lieutenant who takes these huge poles, and that's Magnus Sheffield, to spring Simmons to victory, I, to me that was really impressive because it was like not only is Quinn Simmons you know very strong, but this team rode like a really just just like a like rode like a pro team. Yeah, no, it was uh, it was an impressive showing uh, for for the way just exactly that dynamics you described, and uh, interesting how you know the decision they made to take away the U twenty three race uh, team that development program had so many great riders come out of that program. But I think part of that reason why too was how just the, things are changing in the sport and you're seeing young guys getting pro contracts even earlier than before. Before back in the day, you know, you had to kind of race U23 teams where they wouldn't pick up a rider until they were 23, 24 years old. And now we're seeing these guys, you know, Remco last year, right from juniors to the world tour. And now we have our own Remco with Quinn, right to Trek Segafredo. So I think that's one reason why we saw some of those changes. And it's it'll be interesting to see how this plays out, to see if that talent pipeline continues, because that really was so effective there for, for you know, really 15, almost 20 years of kind of feeding, uh, the bottom feeding, you know, it's almost the minor leagues going up into the world tour. Yeah, I hope it does. I mean, I wrote a piece on the site saying that the performance of the junior program is a testament to the the value of development programs and how, you know, if if USA Cycling continues to cut the budget, they should print out some of the quotes from some of these junior kids and send it around to their board members to say, look, you know, we raced cohesively throughout the year. That's why we won. You know, we got to, we got to win because, yeah, we have this strong guy, but like we have this these junior racing opportunities. Um, Let's hear from Quinn Simmons. I caught up with him the day after his world championship ride. He had a lot to say. We talked about his move to Trek Segafredo next year, why he's decided to go to the world tour instead of spending a couple years in the U23 development ranks. Um, and he breaks down the victory for us. Uh, so let's hear from Quinn. Uh, my next guest on the Vel News podcast is a recently crowned world champion, uh, Quinn Simmons coming to us from Yorkshire. Quinn, how are you feeling today? Uh, yeah, pretty good. Um, still hasn't quite sunk in yet, but yeah, just enjoying being here. Have a day to watch the 23 race and, you know, the last couple of days with the junior team. So just trying to enjoy it. Uh, how did you celebrate the big win? Uh, we went straight to a bakery. Uh, me and Magnus were there still straight from doping control, stopped at a bakery, came home, dinner. Then rest team went out for ice cream. So definitely been, you know, everyone's been super focused, coming, trying to be on our best form. You know, it's good to just eat some sugar again. You know, yeah. (laughs) 
So, Quinn, your win, uh, we wrote about it on the site yesterday. I mean, it was it was a dramatic win. It was a breakaway win. But when I think about it, it was really a well-executed team win in that we saw the American junior team get to the front um, at some crucial moments of the race, really break up the, the pack. And then you and Magnus went off the front on this crucial climb. Um, first of all, what are the moments, now that you've had a day to digest it, what are the, the, the visions and the memories and the moments that really stick out about yesterday's race? Uh, well, first of all, our original plan going in was to use some guys early to just keep it pretty well controlled going into the first major climb and then try and split it down to a smaller group going over the first long climb, about 10 minutes, pretty steep. And, you know, we hit it look up we're going in this climb we got the whole team on the front just like we had planned which is pretty rare for a junior race to be that organized we go we hit it pretty hard over the top split the field in half just like we wanted and then the second climb up into the circuits again the whole team on the front just riding crazy we split it down again we had fallen the plan perfectly which again you know that never happens in the junior race just because everything's so crazy and then when me and magnus finally got the gap and we had a break and it was the ideal setup we had always wanted to try and get the two of us onto the circuits in a small group and when we rode through the first time through the start finish and it was us and three other guys it was pretty cool so you made the decision to go about 33k why go there and was there ever a thought in your mind that ooh, this might have been a little early yeah, I, I, that place I had picked out for an attack, um, I planned on doing it a lap later than I did, but the field was catching our initial break, and to, if I were to have waited for the group to catch, it makes it a lot harder to try and go solo because there's fresh guys who can follow, so it had about 10, 15 second buffer on top of that, and then from there, it's just really trying to regulate the effort and you know make sure that if I did get caught, it would still be okay, but... After, you know, about 15K to go and there's still a 40-second gap, you just fully commit and go for it. And, you know, riding solo on a world championship circuit packed with fans in Yorkshire is pretty amazing. Quinn, I want to dig into something that you mentioned in your previous answer, which was, uh, it, you know, in junior races, we us- usually don't see this type of control. And, you know, if some of the listeners out there may have watched the junior world championships and watched the American team, Uh, As I wrote my column, riding like quick step, you know, having riders on the front, controlling the pace, dictating um, the ebb and flow of the race. It sounds like in these junior races that doesn't usually happen. I remember talking to you a few months back and some of the other junior riders and basically saying that in these junior races, a lot of times it's just it's chaos. It's just constant attacks. Why is that? Why do you think these junior races are so chaotic and how different was yesterday's race compared to what we normally see? Well, I think a lot of the reason it's normally so chaotic is, you know, it's normal for us to have a 90K stage or 100K and, you know, two hours of racing, everyone can go full gas for two hours. There's not that much difference and it's just one after another and a lot of luck. This race was another 50K, so at 150K, that's pretty long for a junior, which, you know, that helps us control a little bit, especially with the depth of strength we have with the guys and being able to motor all day. But I think the biggest thing came down to this, the same group we've raced with pretty much all year from the spring through the summer trip. And then again, our pre-worlds build up. So everyone knows exactly what they need to do without even really talking about it. And, you know, we had a really good group and we knew we could win and knew the right way to do it. And everyone just executed perfectly. Quinn, take me through the races that you guys did in the lead up to the world's. Um, USA Cycling's junior team had some pretty um, pretty amazing success at some of these races. And at what point in that uh, buildup did you know that not just you, but the team was really on form to do something in Yorkshire? Uh, so the first race we did was a stage race in Switzerland called Rublon. Unfortunately, we lost Luke. He broke his collarbone there. But, you know, the day before he broke that, we and Magnus ripped a lead out for him, and we went one, two, three on the stage. And then in the afternoon, me, Magnus, and Matthew were one, two, three in the time trial. So already there, that was pretty impressive team performance. And then we did another stage race in Belgium this past weekend before coming here. And 
if I think 30k into a 100k stage or 90k stage me and Magnus kind of just rode away from everyone and had a 50k effort just the two of us one by over a minute and a half I think it was and there and then you watched how the guys were able to help defend the GC the next day and you know I think after Kaiser everyone knew that we had the strongest team and you know we all had confidence that everyone could do their job and yeah I think just coming in everyone had won a race stage pretty much jersey whatever so morale is high and trust with everyone was super important and what can you say about the importance of having a cohesive group throughout the year um, when I went over to Sitard to the house to to spend time with you guys it was basically the same group of riders that you raced with through through the entire year what does that do it just it really adds to you know you don't really need to communicate we've all raced together so much everyone knows what everyone's strengths and weaknesses are and on a circuit like this, it was pretty clear me and Magnus could handle it and everyone fully committed to getting us together into the circuit. And when you have a team that's willing to ride like that, I think it's really important because a lot of the junior teams won't do that. You saw a ton of the other guys, other teams, just one at a time solo attacking and they couldn't organize a chase once we were gone. I think it's that difference that we have that they don't is why we were able to be so successful all year and especially here. So it sounds like the plan was specifically to set you up for this race. It's your final year in the juniors. You've shown throughout the year you're very strong. Um, how did you deal with the pressure of having that on your shoulders? Um, I, I mean, there was a little pressure for sure. But for me, you know, it was my last race. I just really wanted to enjoy it. And, you know, we had a really good chance to make history. No one had won in a long time since Le Mans. So I think it was more excitement than pressure. Um, yeah, I had already signed before, so there wasn't team pressure anymore. All the second years on the team know where they're going next year. And, you know, we knew we were the strongest team going in. So it was more just excitement than pressure. Um, one of the big revelations of this year was uh, Magnus Sheffield. He got third place. He was integral in helping set you up for the win. Um, when I was there in Belgium in the spring, he was like the new guy on the team. He was kind of like the, who's this, uh, this new kid? You know, he's fir first year with the program. What can you say about um, how Magnus progressed this year? I think right away, Hemrell will have our first race together. You know, he was already on the front helping control contributed huge towards that win there and then as we raced more and he got more experienced you know he just kept getting stronger and stronger all year and has always been I don't think he's had a single bad day all year he's just been super solid and always played the perfect teammate and you know luck good luckily last weekend in Belgium we were able to help get him some wins so he won two stages and best young rider at Kaiser and you know just been super cool to see him develop as a racer and really excited to see what he does next year yeah because you know you are going to be moving on to the world tour but Magnus is going to stay with the junior program because I believe he has one or two more years to go yeah he's got one more year as well as you know we got a couple other really strong first years and then some younger guys also coming in so I think it should be a really good year next year and you know I think going in to worlds next year again the team will have two of the favorites and I think the same deal for the time trial as well and basically every other race of the year. So, Quinn, i got to ask you this. Um, we're watching the race. You know, you're on your 33K breakaway. Um, and there's at some point the camera's focusing in on you, and it looks like you're, like, waving to people <laughs> on the side of the course, like uh, teammates or friends or something, and kind of flashing them the shaka or just, like, acknowledging <laughs> them. Um, what's going on in that moment? Who are you waving to, and why, why were you doing that? Uh, so we had a lot of the national team staff and, you know, some of my old teammates from last year that are here racing the U23 race out on course watching. Uh, Roy Nickman, the Lux director, he was here out there cheering and then my parents were here also. And, you know, it was so cool being where the crowd is just so energized and being solo on a world championship circuit. It's, you know, it's honestly, I was just having fun and couldn't really believe it was actually happening because it played out exactly how we wanted, which is super rare. And, yeah, it was just pretty crazy. <laughs> so it was almost like, you know, yeah, yeah. I want to win and I'm getting tired or whatever, but I'm not so 
so tired or so in the box that I can't like show some love to some of the people alongside the course. Yeah, no, I was, you know, focused, but also I race my best when I'm still having fun with it and not too stressed. So I think, you know, this team did a good job of having that be the way we race all year. And I think it's worked out pretty well for us. So, Quinn, after your win, uh, win, news came down that you had inked a deal with Trek Segafredo to race in the World Tour uh, for the next two seasons, which is pretty exciting and pretty impressive. You know, we've seen other talented Americans uh, delay their their step into the World Tour until after a couple years at the Pro Conti level or sort of dip their toe into pro racing. You have decided, you know, you're ready for it. You're jumping in. Take us through that decision. Uh, I think a lot of the difference in what I want to do is typically an American racer, you see more stage race focused and I want to race in the classics and to be successful there, you have to have the experience on the roads and in those big races. So to begin next year already learning from the best guys and learning how to race a Flanders and a Roubaix will, you know, the learning that over the next two years is more beneficial than waiting and, you know, doing the U23 version. And then also I think, you know, it's a challenge for sure, but the level of junior racing is so high now that it's not as big of a gap as it used to be. And I think, you know, it's been shown that, you know, young guys can still be competitive. I mean, the tour at the Vuelta, you see Remco, what he's doing. And, you know, generally there seems to be this trend of younger guys going fast. And I think, you know, it's going to be hard for sure, but I'm really excited for the opportunity. And I think it's the best way to keep developing. Why Trek Segafredo? Uh, I think the biggest I wanted to go to a classics team for sure so I you look at what they've done you know back with Cancellar and Degenkolb and some of their young guys they have now like Stoyman and Peterson they got a super impressive classics roster they've won all the big races as well as an American based team which I think that's cool to be a part of sticking with an American bike brand and you know also I'll be able to do a little bit of off-road stuff I think I'll be at Kansas and maybe Leadville again which is cool for the first couple of years. And, you know, they just have a lot of faith and development for me and are going to let me race some of the bigger stuff right away, which was my goal for next year already. And it kind of fit together perfectly. Well, it's exciting stuff, Quinn. And, um, you know, jumping right in after the juniors, I mean, that's sort of like uh, Kobe Bryant going into the NBA uh, straight out of high school or LeBron like that. That's, that's a pretty bold statement that you're making. Yeah, I mean, I think I think I'm ready for it. Um, talked to a lot of coaches, a lot of different people, and you know, it definitely wasn't just my decision. And you know, a lot of people I trust think it's possible and think it will work well. And you know, we'll see. Obviously, there's a risk, but I think there's a risk in waiting too. And you know, Americans in the past haven't been like super successful in the classics, so doing what they've always done might not be the best idea. So try a different route and I think it'll work out. I'm hopeful. Got a good team, got their performance staff and all the directors backing it and Trek super excited. So I think it'll be a great two years. Well, Quinn, we can't wait to uh, see how things progress for you and congrats again on the big world championship race. We're going to let you get back to your recovery because it sounds like you have a little uh, Zwift event coming up tonight, right? Yeah, Zwift Worlds tonight. Um, I've never raced on Zwift, so whole new experience. But yeah, it should be fun. I think it's in a packed bar, so pretty good atmosphere and should be pretty exciting. Hopefully, they're not checking IDs for you, buddy. Because uh, well, I guess you're over there. You're you're in the UK. You're old. You're old enough to actually go buy a beer. Oh, I think we'll see how the race goes first. There's pretty good prize money, so <laughs> gotta stay focused. Awesome, Quinn. Well, congrats again, and we will continue to follow your career. Cool. Thank you. Yeah, Hoodie. So like he said, I mean, he wants to do the classics. And we often see, you know, with young Americans, they're time trialists. They want to do stage racing. And this guy is like, I want to go win Flanders and Roubaix. And the, the, the way I see me being able to do that is to start racing them at age 19 and see how far I can get. I mean, it's, it's pretty impressive. 
Yeah, it's exciting. I mean, that's what you know, in the United States we you know we always need that kind of big classics rider. It'd be great to see him develop into that kind of rider. We had uh, you know George Hincapie and Tyler Farrar was there for a couple times. You know, living in uh, Ghent and and uh, getting some good results at uh, you know the American. We never had that Greg LeMond and the classics. So it'd be awesome to see him develop into that kind of rider. Uh, um, we would be remiss if we didn't also talk about Megan Yastrzemski's victory in the junior women's race. And again, I wrote a piece on the site about this and. Uh, Megan and the whole USA team, you know, these junior women's races tend to be a little bit more races of attrition. And we saw that with the group being whittled down. It came into the final 10Ks to go. Group got smaller and smaller. And then with 3Ks to go is when Megan was just really smart. The Russian Gariva, who was the world uh, time trial, who just won the time trial world championships, attacked and went off the front. And Megan goes and sits on her wheel. And uh, she's cagey doesn't pull through okay Kariva you're the time trial world champion keep pulling keep pulling keep pulling I think she did one pull and then sat on uh, Gariva's wheel until the final kilometer and then behind the peloton is catching up and catching up and I was on the edge of my seat I'm like holy cow this gal Megan has ice running through her veins hoodie I mean it's just it's like a world tour race it's just like a game of Russian roulette are you gonna sprint are you gonna wait you know how many times have we seen breakaways caught right at the line because they're dilly and dallying and she's just like track standing with Gariva and then does her sprint at 300 meters to go it's so close that Gariva gets caught gets you know taken out of the medals and Yastrab wins by like you know, half a bike length ahead of the sprinters as they're coming across. It was glorious stuff. But but the I think I wrote this in the piece. It's like, you know, you talk to Megan and she's this smiling and bubbly personality. And then watching that performance, I'm like, she's a cold blooded killer. She's got ice in her veins, man. She is <laughs> she's cool a cool, cold blooded killer. Watch out for Megan Yastrap. That's great stuff. I mean it's it's been a very good week for for the USA cycling team. It was an interesting uh, wrinkle our, our man on the ground there, Jim Cotton, got that story about why the USA cycling did not field a mixed relay team to open up the uh, event last week. And we talked about it on the podcast last week, you know, is that a real event or is it contrived? And uh, the USA cycling decided not to field a team, even though, you know, on paper, they would have been one of the favorites to, to really do a, a strong performance there. And they decided not to because the real focus is on Tokyo 2020. Um, both, I think, in the men's and women's, there were some extra starting spots in the Olympics next year in play. So the strong results in uh, the racing this week it got them some extra starting spots for Tokyo. And this this world just serves as momentum going into the Olympics next year. Uh, I think it's going to be pretty exciting, uh, you know, really racing, uh, you know, in Tokyo across all, all the disciplines. I think so, too. I think that this, if uh, American cycling is able to cut keep the momentum going from this world championships um we could be we could be looking at multiple medals in tokyo which is exciting to think about well that's going to do it for us here at the Velo news podcast thank you to my co-host andrew hood thanks to our special guest quinn simmons congratulations to all the medalists from the uci world road championship in yorkshire and again come on out to veloswab i cannot wait to try and sell you my used bike parts We'll see you next week.